if you'd like, open your Bibles to Psalms 22. We're going to spend our entire time in that psalm. As I was looking at the, uh, watching the video and thinking about the badger and how creative he was in getting out, he wants some of those skills during the time of trouble. <laughs> Do you think? And I want to talk and take a second and talk about that. I'd like each of you to take a second, a moment, and look around the church. Those that you know that are close friends, maybe those that are just casual acquaintances. And I want to picture yourself now in the time of trouble. We are told during this time that father and son will be against one another. Mother and daughter will be against one another. And as a church family, we will not be unaffected. We are told by scriptures, we are told by example, we are told by inspiration. We can look at the Reformation. ever talk about the people that started the Reformation but then during the time of their trouble they went back and recanted. There is the story of, of the Archbishop of Cant, I believe Canterbury in England where not once, not twice, but three times he had stood up for the Reformation Three times when he was put into jail, he recanted under the pressure. Finally, as he watched others of his peers who turned around and, and went to their death, praising the Lord, he finally got the courage. And as the story is told, as he was being taken to the stake, he actually put his hand into the fire, saying, as he was doing, you have betrayed my Lord. You will burn first. We read in scriptures in Acts where, where Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. Who would you want you to be your Silas next to you? So that when you're in prison, you can be praising God rather than being overcome by fear. And there I bring up, what if you're in the hands of an angry mob? I saw something on January 6th a couple years ago that we thought would never, ever happen in this country. People who were fanatical over a man what will it be like when Satan himself takes Christ walking on this earth and as things continue to go bad he sits back and it says it's those people, those people, those people, those people they are the ones that are causing your problem get rid of them and then 
How will you stand? This quarterly, we're going through what? The crucible with Christ. Well, today, I would like you to walk you through the crucible that Christ himself went through. The Gospels tell us what happened to Jesus. But today, we're going to read Psalms 22, because in this psalm, David is describing what Christ himself was feeling And I would submit to you that even these words, as powerful as they may be, do not even begin to cover what Jesus was actually experiencing. No man, no woman could ever, ever experience what it meant to become like sin for us, to become a curse for us. Think about your dear loved ones, and if you're separated from them for whatever, it, whatever reason it happens to be, how you feel, the loneliness, the heartache. Now picture Jesus, who has been one with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, a time never-ending. And now, to redeem you, To redeem me, he becomes sin, which separates him from his father for the first time in his existence. Can we even begin to grasp what he felt? I can't. I can be drawn to it. I can be appreciative of it. But I don't think I ever, there's nothing that will ever, ever bring us into a full understanding. So if you will, bow your heads for a moment for prayer. Lord, it is written that you felt like a worm on that cross. Lord, I am but dust. I came from the dust, I will return to the dust. There is no value in that. My only value is found in the price that you paid for me and for everyone on that cross. Your atoning sacrifice to redeem us and to reconcile us unto yourself. You accomplished what we could never do. And may we use when our time of trouble comes, when we are called to be faithful witnesses to you. We know that there will be no strength in us, but it will be you in us to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us begin with Psalm 22, and we're going to, there'll be no slides today. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way. Pull out your Bibles. Um... And if you have your electronic Bible, pull that out as well. Follow along. We have pew Bibles as well. And if you're at home, please pull them out as well. I would encourage you to get back to printed Bibles. The day may come. In fact, not may, will come. 
when there will be no electricity and those devices which consume so much of our time today and make it so convenient in so many ways will not be there. And what will be helping you to stand is what time you have spent in scriptures reading, studying, and praying about. Keep in mind that the promise of the Lord that he will bring back into remembrance things when we need it. But the key word is the remembrance. You have had to have read it somewhere along the line and studied and prayed about it somewhere along the line before he will bring it back. Psalm 22 is known as Lamentation. It is also known as the Crucifixion Psalm, filled with powerful visual metaphors to help us get a glimpse of what our Lord and Savior was going through. It begins with a note that says, To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. Scholars and and teachers, when they look at this, David wrote so many psalms. They can look at psalms and sit back and say, like, it's Psalms 51. Well, we know what David was going through with Psalms 51. He had sinned with Bathsheba and arranged the death of Uriah the Hittite. Nathan the prophet comes to him and convicts him, and this is David's heartfelt prayer of repentance. One spirit lived because I will tell you, my repentance is not like David's in most cases. How many times is our prayer of repentance, Lord, forgive me for my sins? David poured his heart out during this. We can picture Psalms 23, which is the following psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. We could all probably picture David sitting under the stars guarding the father's sheep and thinking how the Lord is like a shepherd. But there is nothing in David's life that we can point to that would indicate what he is describing here. The very first words are words that I'm sure we are all familiar with. And what are they? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words of Christ written, spoken from the cross are written in Matthew and Mark. I'd like to read Matthew. Now, when you think of Jesus saying these words, you think he was sitting there saying it like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think he was whispering? Do you think he was struggling? Or do you think from the depths of despair he was crying out? This is what Matthew is trying to evoke. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with what? A loud voice. Eli, Eli, lamachthabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ had become sin for me, for you. Christ had become a curse. He became the very things that he despises and hates to redeem us. As I mentioned, for the first time, he is feeling separated 
from the Father. How many times my wife may go out and I come home and, and she's out and it gets dark and I begin to worry where she's at. And I become a little afraid sometimes. Has something happened to her? Why hasn't she called? I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced that. This is something infinitely different. This is total separation. For the first time in his entire existence, Jesus and the Father are not one. And then I want us to look at these next words. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? In pagan culture, almost from the beginning, and it matters not, doesn't matter whether it was the Middle East, South America, whatever. Every single pagan culture, when something bad happens, a famine, flood, you lose a war to your enemies, whatever it happens to be, pestilence going through the village, the belief is that the deity, the gods, got to be angry. And the best way to satisfy the anger is to do what? offer up a sacrifice. And what's unfortunate is that Christianity, and I care not what denomination, is infected with that same belief that Christ died to satisfy the anger and self-righteousness of God. Is that what's being described here? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. He doesn't say, Father, thank you for, for pouring out your wrath on me so that I can save these people. Was that what he said? No. Father, forgive them. When we look at the suffering of Christ, I want to ask you who are parents, what would you do if you saw your child being tortured? I know that's not a pretty sight. But would you not rather it be you in their place rather than watching your child suffer? Think of the Father now and the Holy Spirit in heaven restraining themselves from interceding. This week in, in the Sabbath school, we talked about Job. That was one of the stories that was touched upon. But that story about Job isn't just about Job. 
It was to give us insight into what's going on behind the scenes, what we cannot see, the war that broke out in heaven, this controversy over the character of God. How is the universe to be ruled? Is it to be ruled by God's love, unconditional, other-centered? What's best for someone else? Or is it to be ruled by the law of Satan? Conditional, self-centered love. What's in it for me? What's best for me? And if I have to trample on you to get what I want, that's okay. <coughs> that's the real issue. The issue isn't over God's power. The issue is over the character who wields this power. And imagine being all-powerful, all-knowing, everything. Still creating us, knowing the cost that it would take to redeem us. When I sit back and say Christianity has the same lie, think about this. There are churches out there that believe the best way to get grace from God is to offer up Jesus as a sacrifice at every Mass. I was in that church. I was born into that church. It is a lie because grace is a gift, something that can't be earned. And they aren't the only ones who hold a perverted view of Christ. How many times do we hear people sit back, well, he died for my sins, past, present, and future, so it's okay. I can continue to live. All I got to do is, as Bob would say, the sinner's prayer, and then go on with the rest of my life. Is that how shallow? Is that, that, that how we diminish the cross, the sacrifice that Christ gave? And what about, what does it reveal about God and his character? Let me read to you just a few of the scriptures to show how perverted this idea that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was to appease the anger of God. How perverted this view is. We all know John 3, 16, 17, right? For God, so what? Loved the world that he beat his only son, that he gave his only begotten son, that so whoever shall believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Do we deserve condemning? Absolutely. But that through him we might be saved. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for me, for you. 1 John 4.16, and we know and believe that love that God has for us because what? God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And then these words of Jesus, John 10, 17. Therefore, my father loves me because I, what? Lay down my life that I may take it up again. Do these sound like pagan ideas 
that God has to be offered a sacrifice to be appeased so that he can love us? Or does it show us that God loved us from the very beginning? When Adam and Eve sinned, whose heart changed? Was it God's or was it Adam and Eve's? And what is our inheritance from Adam and Eve? It's that same misconception about God's character and who he is. And that is what needs to be conquered. 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose, the Son of Man was made manifest to destroy the works of the devil. And what was those works? Lies about God's character. How do I know that? Does the Bible explicitly state that? Probably not. There are places that we can deduce it from. But Satan, when he tempted Jesus, laid claim to all the world, that all the governments and the nations were his. And how do they act? All we need to do to understand what Satan's kingdom would look like if he had won at the cross, is to look at what's going on now and pick your poison. Do not be deceived. Never before, at least in my lifetime, have we seen our nation more divided. People thinking that fear, force, and violence is the solution to promote their idea of righteousness, of what the government should look like. What we need to remember is that God's government does not look like that. It doesn't matter which side, because both sides, Satan is playing both sides of the game. If you follow politics, you'll know that many contributors will contribute to both candidates. Why? Why not stick behind the one who they think is going to win? Well, we don't know who's going to win, so whichever one does, he's going to be beholden to me. This is what Satan is doing. Do not get caught up. Let me read those words again, because this sets the tone for the rest of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Remember what happened to Job. This was a contest between Job's faith, between Satan and God. Who did the affliction upon Job? Was it God? Or was it God simply stood back and allowed Satan to do what he wanted? And remember, this happened not once, but twice. The first time, Satan was allowed to do anything he wanted, but he could not actually physically touch Job. When Jesus began his ministry, he was taken into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. Most of us have difficulty fasting, at least for me, for four hours alone, 40 days. And then Satan comes and he tempts him. Now keep in mind that Satan tried to kill Jesus as a baby. 
He's now alone, as best as we can tell, with Jesus in the wilderness. Why didn't Satan try to kill Jesus then? He knew that if Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross, he was finished. He knew the plan of salvation. I don't have time to go through the scriptures to prove that. Prove it to yourselves. So why didn't he? What's well, interesting because Matthew and Mark talk about that after Satan left, angels came to minister to Jesus. I would submit to you that that story of Job, that there was a hedge of protection put around Job, that as some would say, the rules of engagement, which we don't have full privy to, that Satan could do whatever he wanted, but he could not. Just as he could not touch Job, he could not touch Jesus. But remember, Satan then goes back and says, it's because you've put your hedge of protection around Job. That's why. He stays, remain faithful. Let him, let me touch him now, and then he will curse you to your face. So God says you can do whatever you want to Job, but you cannot kill him. At the end of this ministry, when Judas betrayed him, that story of Job is now being played out again. That second instance. Only this time, God the Father says to Satan, you can do whatever you want. See, I know your character, and I know what you're going to do. Where Job was a created being, had no ability to withstand Satan, beyond his faith that his Redeemer lives. The same faith that you and I have. The only faith that we have that will get us through whatever trials and tribulations, whether it's during the time of trouble or for many of us, we don't even have to wait for the time of trouble because our life is already filled with trouble. But now he's dealing with God himself. And I can't prove it from scriptures, but I am absolutely, utterly convinced that Satan was putting everything on Jesus that he could, particularly when he was on the cross, to get him to recant. Remember that when he was on the cross, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, people were saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Christ, come down and save, your, save yourself. Then we will believe you. Even on the cross, Satan wasn't done. But I think in Satan's delusional mind that he's sitting back and thinking that if I had the kind of power that God had, I would never, ever allow myself to be humiliated and degraded the way Christ was. And I'm convinced that Satan thought at some point, if I can just get him to sin just once, to even think about a sin, I've won. And the fact that you and I are standing here today, we know what? That the victory was already won at the cross. 
whatever you're going through, whatever trials, whatever heartache you're experiencing today, what may come towards us tomorrow or the next day, if we are alive when the time of trouble really comes upon this world, which based on the way things are going probably will happen in our lifetime for most of us. The only thing that's going to get us through, it's not going to be by our strength, by my strength, by your strength. It's going to be looking at what Christ did to redeem us, enduring the shame and humiliation. That is the gospel. His life, his death, the resurrection, and the promise that he will return and claim his own again. The gospel is that simple. It's not complex. Oh, my God, verse 2, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear me. Do you think God did not hear him? I believe God heard everything. I believe God was right next to him, but withholding himself. Mothers, think of your baby when they're sick. What do you do? And they're crying. Do you hand them off to somebody else? They hear you take them? Or do you bring them and draw them closer to you, holding them as close as you can, aching and wanting to take away their suffering? I don't know what was going on. I'm not God. I don't have ability to see into the unseen world. But this is what I believe was happening. I believe God was right there. But he was having to hold himself and veil himself because what Jesus was doing to redeem us. And in the night, and not silent. Verse 3 now picks up and changes a little bit. And there's a lesson for us in this because what David is now doing here where in the first two verses we hear the cry and the anguish and the agony. Now, what gets us through that is remember the promises and what God has done for us in the past. Because he was faithful in the past, we can trust him in the future. We can trust him now. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. And listen to what David says. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. I remember the words of Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel or of the cross. And then we pick up in verse 6. We go back to seeing a little bit of the insight into what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. 
And he says, but what? But I am a worm and not a man. In fact, I'm a reproach among men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me and they shoot out their lips. They shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. We need to understand that when, when Isaiah prophesied that we esteemed him stricken by God, that idea of esteem is not reality. It's we think he was stricken by God when in reality it was sin that had done this. Cursed is he who hangs from a tree. Paul talks about Christ becoming that curse for us, to redeem us. We look at that and think, eh, but we need to go back into the Jewish mind, back in the time of Jesus, what that meant to them. And we need to understand something, that when the religious leaders wanted to have Christ killed, they could have and should have according to the law. What did they accuse him of at his trial? Of blasphemy. And according to the law of Moses, which they claimed that they followed, what did the law of Moses demand of a blasphemer? He was to be taken outside the city and stoned to death. Is that what they did? No. See, the prophecy of Isaiah was going to be fulfilled because they wanted him to be believed, to be believed, to be stricken by God. And what better way they have him Hang from a tree, for it is written, Cursed is he who hangs from a tree. They wanted him to be perceived, to be cursed by God. This idea that, well, because the Roman rulers, we couldn't put him to death. Yeah, really? If that's the case, why then do we read in Acts that they stoned Stephen to death? So it was a conscious decision that they wanted Jesus to be viewed as a curse. And he did become that curse. Paul later came to realize that. I can't begin to understand what Jesus was feeling. The physical pain alone would have crushed, if we're honest with ourselves, would have crushed us. But now, place on Jesus the agony of becoming sin, of everything that he's against. To be separated for the first time from the Father. This idea of being a worm. We read this. <clears throat> and when you think of a worm, what do you think of? Something that's kind of low and squiggly and maybe good for your gardens. You know, you might tear up some paper and throw it out and make a little worm garden because they're good for the soil. But it's interesting as I was preparing for this sermon. I learned something about the worm that I never expected. Because, see, the worm that, that, 
David uses happens to be the same word than in Exodus, in the books of Moses, it gets actually translated as scarlet. As it turns out that the worm that David is talking about, remember back then that they didn't have chemical dyes. Dyes came from the natural world around. We read in, in Acts about Aquila being a, a person of a purple dye, but they would take certain types of, of, of uh, shells and crush them and get the purple dye from them. Well, it turns out that the scarlet that was used in the sanctuary to dye the curtains, to dye the badger skin red, came from a particular type of worm. That when crushed, would produce red dye. They talk about this worm that has a, the female has a particular, peculiar way that it will, when it's ready to give birth and to lay its eggs, it will attach itself to a tree. And it will protect its eggs until they hatch. We see this protection in many animals throughout that God has created. But this worm does something a little bit different. When the eggs hatch and the little wormettes are out there, the worm dies. And as it dies, it leaves a red stain on the tree. That is the imagery that David is wanting us to grasp. And I thank the scholars who have been able to go back and dig out this information to take this little statement, but I am a worm, and to magnify it beyond something that I would never ever have contemplated. Something that reminds us of the full sacrifice of Christ. What did he say? A kernel of wheat has to die, fall into the ground in order to produce fruit. It's the same concept, same principle. So Bob, the next time we joke about saying, I am but a worm, Let's remember the sacrifice of what it really was about Jesus becoming a worm. The lamentation continues. All that who see me ridicule me. They shoot their lips and they shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. He sense he delights in him. But now we come back again. And this is what a lamentation tends to do. The poetic structure. I got to tell you, we... I, I, there's something about modern man that we simply, because of all our technology, we simply think that we are somehow superior to those that lived in the past. And yet the richness and the beauty and the poetry, particularly in the Gospels and the Scriptures, far exceeds what most writers can do today. 
Now we come to, again, that reminder. This is what I'm going through. And what is going to get me through? It's trusting in the Lord. Verse 9 begins, But you, who took me out of the womb, you made me trust while my mother's breast, while on my mother's breast, I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. I'm not going to get into the nature of Jesus. It's a mystery. He's unique in all the universe. No one is like him. And I'm not taking anything away from the Godhead. Because Jesus somehow, in a process I cannot understand, he has united his divinity with humanity. And it doesn't stop at the cross. He has done it for all eternity. When you feel down and depressed that God has forsaken you, and I know all of us at some point have gone through that. Maybe you're going through that now. And it's easy to wallow in our pity, feel worthless. We are but dust. But you are dust, and I am dust that is of an infinite value to God. And how do I know that? Because the price that he paid to redeem us. That alone, but the idea that he will be united with us forever is amazing. I don't know what aspect of his Godhead he gave up, but one thing I know he didn't give up. That was his character of unconditional, other-centered love. I will do whatever it takes to redeem my children that I created. We come to verse 11. And now we see a petition where he's crying out to the Father, Be not far from me. For trouble is near, for there is no one to help me. He then goes into a series of talking about animals, what he was feeling. David is trying to project what it was like for Christ being on the cross. He talks about bulls. He talks about lions. He talks about dogs. Reading in verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, I don't know what a bull of Bashan was like. My guess is that they were fierce, uncaring. Step into my pasture, and it'll be the last time you step in anything, I guess. I don't know. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. And, of course, we can understand a lion, can't we? we know who is like a raging and roaring lion, right? Seeking to devour us. He then talks about, I am poured out like water. And now we get a glimpse even deeper of what he was feeling physically. All my bones are out of joint. My heart 
is like wax. It is melted within me. He is describing a broken heart. But a heart broken that I could never, ever comprehend. My strength is dried up like pot shard. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of my death. For dogs have surrounded me, and the congregation of wicked has enclosed upon me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. Have you ever been so sick, so aching, that you feel just every nerve, every fiber in your body aching? I actually experienced that recently. But it doesn't even begin to give me a glimpse of what Jesus was going through. They looked at me and stared at me. They divided my garments among them and my clothing. They cast lots. Again, a prophecy that was fulfilled. Time doesn't give us to go through the remainder. I would encourage you to read this psalm in its entirety. Think about the sacrifice that Christ gave. Think about what he went through to redeem you, to redeem me. It is a sacrifice beyond comprehension. And what I want to leave with you is actually, I want to take a quote from a man named E.J. Wagner. Now, if you're familiar with Adventist history, you will know that it was Wagner and Jones who delivered a powerful message in 1888 to the church. The church had been focused on doctrine, and Wagner and Jones basically came back and said, no, our focus needs to be on Christ. It is not about my righteousness, because I have none. It is about his righteousness. In fact, the message you may be familiar with is called righteousness by faith, but that is not how it was always referred to. There was a time in Adventist history that was known as Christ, our righteousness. I actually like that one a little better because it reminds me of Christ. Shortly before his death, E.J. Wagner describes his conversion experience that he had when he was a younger man and what brought him to Christ. He says this, Christ is primarily the word of God, the expression of God's thought, and the scriptures are the word of God simply because they reveal Christ. It was with this belief that I began my real Bible study, and he's talking about 34 years, years ago. And then he talks about a vision that he was given. At the time, Christ was set before my eyes, evidently crucified before me. I was sitting a little apart from the body of the congregation in a large tent at a camp meeting. I have no idea what the subject or the discourse was. Not a word nor a text can I recall. All that has remained with me is what I saw. 
Suddenly, a light shone around me, and the tent was, for me, far more brilliantly lit than if noonday sun had been shining. And I saw Christ hanging on the cross, crucified for me. Satan is doing everything he can to blot out the cross. The way he attacks me is going to be different than the way he attacks you. We each have different strengths, each have different weaknesses. But everything Satan is doing, he's preparing. He's preparing for that moment that the four angels pull back and he is allowed to imitate and create a counterfeit to Christ's return and pull off the ultimate deception. I don't know what he's going to do. Scriptures doesn't give us the full details. But in my own mind, I picture Satan coming down on the Mount of Olives, claiming to be Jesus, the same mountain that Jesus went up. How many people would that deceive? E.J. Wagner's conversion came about by being able to see Christ crucified on the cross, not for you, but for him. He made it personal. And my appeal to you is to do the same thing. When you look at the cross of Christ, every day we should reflect on that whether you read the gospel accounts, whether you read the Psalms, whether you're just in your prayer, whatever it happens to be, start your day out with this understanding of the price and the value that Christ put on your head and mine.